Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. about creation, you know, the origin story, you know, how energy was created. And so the way I drew each card followed that. So it was, you know, the majors because that's the primordial energy. Then it was, you know, the aces, twos, threes, and then it's fours because so there's this because four is when you know the spirit realm materializes into an earthly realm and so i skip all the way to four so there's this idea of like how i did it was very much it was very very methodical but it had to follow a form of magical theory the whole concept was to commune with my holy guardian angel and then having my holy guardian angel present while i listened to Wait and Crowley and use their dictations to craft the structure and the sort of symbolism in every single card. What does your magical practice look like? Since I was very small, I, as early as I can remember, my mom would take me to monasteries, um, and so I had to do a lot of meditative practices ever since I was very small. Um, I had to just listen to a lot of... Um, so my mom really believed that... Um, Esoteric practices, forms of active magic, forms of occult practice, cannot be divorced from religion. When you, or you martial arts, when you take martial arts or witchcraft and you divorce it from religion, um, that's when the ego can go unchecked, and that's when problems happen. When you tether um, craft with religion, the religion, I think they're separate, right? But I think when you put them together, the religion gives you some form of framework to check your ego, you know, and, and, and keep you humble. And so I think ever since I was small, religion has always very much weighed on top of any form of active craft. And it's always been that way for me. And there's this idea of you should never do martial arts or Shaolin or um, Qigong or, or any kind of meditation or any kind of um, personal development without a very um, close honor of God, of some form of deity. And so I don't know that, I don't even know if my ego stays in check, but I think for me, I've always had the sense of I answer to something else. And there's punishment in a different realm for me if I don't keep in check. And that's always been part of my mentality every time I practice craft. That sounds super Christian in a way, right? This concept of like in the afterlife, there's yeah. punishment. But you, are you Christian? You're not, right? No, 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 not Christian. Um, if I, I don't, so I, I've, I've always, I, I've always asked my parents, oh, what's your, like, I asked my dad one time, and this is very recently, dad, you know, I've known you for almost 40 years of my life, and I actually have no idea what your religion is, you know, isn't that crazy? And he's like, oh, I'm every religion, and I'm no religion, and I was like, yeah, I like that, you know, and so I followed that, but if I had to sort of pigeonhole it, I'm probably more Buddhist. Because um, Taoism and Buddhism, just in China, they get sort of stuck together just because of the history. And so um, a lot of the 
uh, religious vocabulary I use is going to be Buddhist, although the actual practice is going to look Taoist. I'm going to be 40 in, in March. <laughs> Actually, because of magic, I feel as though I look younger now than I did 10 years ago. And I'm not bullshitting you. Like, if I look at photos of me even like five years ago, I look a lot younger now. And I definitely attribute it to magic. There's something about moving the energy within your body, manipulating energy in the external world. Something about the moving of, you know, that sort of, when you get older, maybe the energy gets stagnant. And when you're young, the energy is very dynamic. And maybe because the energy is moving a lot more. Well, I mean, that's part of the whole concept of Taoist magic, right? Like the, you know, what is the ultimate goal of practicing magic in Taoism? It's immortality. And I, I kind of see immortality it's more of a metaphor, you know, like a, a figure of speech. But the concept is very interesting, this idea of practicing magic toward immortality. And I think there's a lot of interesting um, aspects that I can take to take from that that's real life. For example, leaving a legacy, leaving a written legacy. You're immortal when you leave a written legacy of your thoughts, right? You leave your identity in written form or in something that can be passed on for generations. And it's ideas that get passed on for generations. That's immortality. And um, on a lighter note, yeah, it is ways to manipulate the body so aging doesn't affect you as quickly as it does other people. That yin energy becomes so strong that you become like this ocean, this deep ocean. And then from this ocean, it's like this wellspring of, I don't know, vitality. Versus you're constantly, you know, spewing energy out, like that very yang energy. Maybe that energy is like getting out of you versus being replenished within you. This is just something that I'm thinking about right now. So in Taoist magical theory, there's three stratospheres of energy that you draw from as a magician. There's Shen, Qi, and Jing. Shen is like divinity energy, divine higher energy. Well, we call it divinity energy. It's about petitioning the deities. It's, it's not the same, so you can't think of it, you can't transplant Western ideas and try to convert. But the idea of Shen is where you take from divinity. Um, qi is personal energy, but it's also like the chi of gemstones, crystals, um, herbs, earthly stuff, right? So the chi of all forms of like material things, anything that takes material form has a chi. So you can, as a magical practitioner, you can work with the chi energy of things of this earth. You can work with the shin energy from above or jing. Jing is like a lower, it's, so for example, if you're doing sex magic, sex magic is rooted in jing energy. That's the best way I can describe it. And so I, speculate that a lot of magicians work with jing energy, that energy because it's very powerful, um, it's very attractive, and once you attune yourself to jing energy, it's really easy to keep on going back to it. It's easy to siphon energy from the jing stratosphere, whereas I think qi is more about ritual magic needs to go into working with qi energy, and then shen is about a whole lifestyle. You know, you not everybody can siphon energy from shin from the shin stratosphere. It's a, it's a whole lifestyle that you have to adopt. You really need to get into a particular way of being a magical practitioner to siphon energy from the shin. And so I think people who decide to commit to that lifestyle, they do have a glow to them, exactly what you were saying. And I think if you're constantly taking from jing energy, uh, you do have effective craft, but at what cost to your own life? It's a strange thing where it's like, when you get to a certain level of magic, on one hand, you're manipulating energy, but on the other hand, you're kind of letting the universe do with you what it will, because you are the universe, so you're kind of letting yourself mm -hmm. 
do with you what it will with the higher you. And that, I think, is what a lot yeah, of young, yeah. magical people, they don't realize. They're so busy doing the ritual. They're so busy, like, me, 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 ego. And we forget that part. And that's what Eastern magic is really good at, kind of reminding you constantly, hey, remember? There's the ocean. You're just a raindrop. You're all going to go back to the ocean. What are some things that anybody, let's say just like an Asian-American person who's never heard of magic, right? What can they incorporate into their lives from Eastern magic? immediately that's going to help them. One thing that I always say is just if every single day um, take 60 seconds to sit still and visual your, visualize yourself as a mountain, as solid and still as a mountain. And you are part of the ground that you are. Like, you're, like your feet are connected to the ground and you feel like you're part, like you are a fixture of the earth. So you are of the earth and you are, you're, you're literally a mountain that's part of the landscape of the earth. And just take 60 seconds to focus on your breath, breathing in the air and then breathing out. And just, if you can do that every single day for 60 seconds, that opens up a lot of doors of physical health, um, energy, vitality, also how you look at the world, how you, like it, weirdly, I swear, weirdly checks your ego. I don't know what, what it is, but just telling people to do that, they will then, find the mindset to go actively search out other practices to continually enhance their own livelihood. And so if you just do that, they'll open new doors for you in terms of how you inter integrate other forms of craft. And also, it's a lot of like how you actually accept, not appropriately, like take other pieces of craft and incorporate it into your life in a way that is that honors the original traditions. I think it's something so simple and so tangible, but if people stick to that, they learn so many like concepts, do you know what I mean? They, they, they integrate so many concepts very quickly. I think a lot of Asian Americans when they came to the West, the church was like a big part of like the social life, you know, that was sort of like where all the immigrants kind of congregated. And so a lot of that indigenous stuff was forgotten or it was suppressed. But the thing is, guys, like Asian Americans, Asian Europeans, Asian Australians, ancestor veneration is like in our blood. Like it is like bubbling inside of us. Like it's so deep in our culture. Like within like what, like your grandparents were doing it. Like even if your parents aren't doing it, even if you're not doing it in your regular life, it's like so deep inside our blood. And so when Asian Americans, they come to me and they're just like, what should I do like in terms of magic? Should I look at this grimoire? Should I look at that grimoire? I'm just like, start with your ancestors. That's where it all begins for, I think, Asian people, anybody in general, but I think especially for anybody who comes from a Confucian, Neo-Confucian culture, ancestor veneration. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think, um, you know, in, in Asian culture, the family is so important, the family unit. I think bringing that into modern society, when you feel like you have a whole clan behind you, supporting you no matter what, you know, in spirit and in body, it's like, it's just so much easier. You know, you're in a position of success and privilege already because you have so much support, both in, in body and in spirit. So I do think ancestor veneration immediately gives, tap, helps you tap into a kind of power. So for example, I know a lot of Eastern traditions believe that once you die, ghosts and spirits and ancestors have a certain power or ability to control things that we humans in physical form don't have. So what you can do is, you know, who 
who in this world is going to help your ass? It's going to be your ancestors. The quickest way to get things to happen for you is petition your ancestors because more than anybody else, they give a shit about you and they want to see you succeed. So you petition your ancestors and say, hey, can you use the power to, you have in that other world to help me out in my world right now? And so that, just in terms of magical vocabulary, the easiest form of magic is ancestor magic because more than anybody else, they, they care about you and they're going to do things for free. Like, you know, there's no bargain for exchange. How can they start doing ancestor veneration in a small, not totally private space? It doesn't have to be a permanent fixture, you know? So it's kind of like cast, like anytime you cast a space, it can be something you put there and then you take off and you put it somewhere else. So what I would, like, for example, writing family names in, in calligraphy, um, you know, doing some kind of sigil magic with the family name, you know, in the traditional, uh, in the traditional, uh, uh, script right and then having something like that that can be a plaque or something that you can put up and then you know those little you know those tiny little teacups like a little teacup and put a little teacup full of rice and then um, one stick of incense and that's it and then just you know when when there's going to be some time when you're alone having that set up just by itself temporarily and having a moment to, when you look at that so I believe in genetic, genetic genetic DNA. So it gets very complicated, but like ultimately, we're talking about ancestor veneration and ancestor help. It is yourself that's helping yourself because you're connected to your ancestors through your DNA. So when you look at the little miniature temporary altar that you've set up, sort of go inward and tap into, just kind of visualize the ancestors as part of your DNA, part of your blood, part of your bones, and you're connected to that and just kind of form a bond or attunement in that space. And I think that's a very easy and quick way to do ancestor veneration and start that practice until you are in a place where you can have a permanent altar. I love that idea. Like, seriously guys, just like call up your mom or dad and have them like send you over. Like if you don't know how to write in, you know, Chinese or, or Korean or Japanese, whatever, have them send over like, you know, the, the script print it out or whatever and you can just stick it up like on the wall and your roommate's gonna think it's super cool they're gonna be like oh what, what's that you know and then yeah just like a little bit of rice a little bit of incense maybe you want to get like a little bit of water but I think it's mainly sort of like even acknowledging your ancestors right I mean they're gonna be so think about your grandma or grandpa right if you have a relationship with them how happy they are you know like how involved Asian grandparents are in your life right like, they're going to be so happy just to be acknowledged. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just the acknowledgement in itself is going to be like, oh, you know, like, my, my darling granddaughter, my darling grandson, you know, of course. Don't worry. Grandma's going to take care of it. Grandpa's going to take care of it. And one of the funny things I find, I don't know if it's, it's not irony, but what's interesting is that ancestors are so much less judgmental than your living relatives. I think even like when you look at things that are multiple generations removed, you even see it among the living. Like, you know, maybe your mom judges your lifestyle, but your grandmother or your great grandmother, for some bizarre reason, is totally okay with the lifestyle that your mother hates. You know what I'm saying? And so when you go back into ancestor veneration, I do trust and I do believe that that sort of distance and time and space and wherever they've evolved into they're at a place where they really just don't give a shit about the lifestyle you've chosen for you they really care about you you know they really care about who you are as you know the, their descendants and so i i just don't believe that there are going to be negative negative experiences because there is a sense of judgment that is not that's just absent 
that's a very good point that you bring up because a lot of people are just like, well, you know, I had some shitty ancestors. Maybe I had ancestors who were rapists, slave owners, whatever. Um, what about them? And, you know, sometimes you can, maybe, the, you know, you can go back further, right? But also at the same time, when people pass over to the other side, they're not who they were in this life, right? So oftentimes that rapist or that um, slave owner, they pass on and then they realize like the shittiness that they've done. And so through you, they're trying to heal, right? They're trying to be like, I was a shitty human being. I'm in spirit now. I see that I was shitty. Now let me try to help you. Let me try to help humanity through you so that I can make up for the shittiness. So does your book um, about the food talismans, does it go over things like ancestor veneration? No, that one I, so first I talked about the theory, you know, so it's, 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 it's very academic. It has like 30, 40 pages of citations and endnotes uh, of um, the, the references that I was researching, but it goes into um, metaphysical or ontological theory of um, how how you know magic works in Eastern traditions. And I talk about the whole history, but like basically the origin story of Taoist magic through all the different dynasties. And then it's sort of like the how-to. But the how-to, um, I go about it a little differently. I don't go, this is how I do it. You know, instead what I say is, well, according to this text from the 16th century, this is a, an example of a spell. Or this is an example of how you use ancestors. First you bring in your ancestors, but so it's not, I don't talk about ancestor veneration, but I just bring it up because you can't not bring it up when you're talking about magic in Eastern traditions. So it's referenced tangentially as part of the different spells only because that's just how magic works. Um, but yeah, I, I don't use my own practice. Instead I say, oh, these are the different practices that are part of actual texts in history and then use that to sort of um, reinterpret and create something that's all your own in the modern era. Oh my god, I'm so fangirling right now. So you've basically written like a PhD, like dissertation about about Eastern magic. <laughs> like seriously, you should like get I like tried. another PhD, you know, like on all these things. I mean, forty pages of citations. It's like my my heart is just like do 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 love, <laughs> you know. Just the fact that you're talking about, you know, like supporting, not just through your own sort of personal gnosis, but also like what's been shown throughout history, what's been talked about throughout history and documented. And I think that's doing a great service to Eastern magic. And one of the reasons why I totally wanted to talk to you, because I was just like, I think one of the things that you're doing is you're bringing this academic rigor, this scholarship, um, and the ability to, you know, take your bilingual capabilities and bring that from the perspective of somebody who grew up in and is linked genetically to that magical tradition. I mean, I honestly can't think of anyone right now who's doing what you're doing. If you had oh, to choose music. three songs or three artists um, that represent your magic, what would they be? Okay. Um, Taco Bell's Canon in D because it's very mathematical. Um, the way it's done, you have a trinity, it's three violins plus a bass. And so the base is a repetition, so there's this idea of, of mathematical, method, you know, very methodical concept that is a consistent baseline throughout. Um, then you have three violins that sort of work together, and that very much resonates with me because I'm always working with the idea of a trinity, some kind of a divine trinity, or, or every part of my magic is about the trinity and bringing that together and understanding that something has to harmonize with three different levels. Um, so that's one. 
Um, oh, this is really hard. You know that like a very simple piece like that um, because I think I do have a very like I I don't take myself too seriously. Um, I I don't take crap like. Craft is very serious, but then there's a concept, there's a part of me that doesn't take it too seriously that also thinks that it should be accessible to everybody. Piano pieces that people who don't play the piano can sit down and play, and it brings people together because it takes it's a duet. And so I feel like that represents my magical approach because I do want to make a lot of the things that have always been esoteric or obtuse more accessible to the common public, especially to the Asian American diaspora. Um, so that's the second piece. And um, the third piece, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> Can I just say two? Sure. And may I just comment that this is ultimate, like, like you know that you're Asian when, you, like, the pieces that you've chosen <laughs> are, like, piano pieces or classical music pieces. Let me tell you, until I was in third grade, my mom, she wouldn't let me listen to anything but classical music. So, like, I totally get you. I totally get it. Did you have to play piano and violin growing up? Yeah, so um, I played the piano, I played the violin. Um, um, in fact, that was pretty much my whole life for a very long time. And because of how, okay, this is how much I know the piano and the violin, I can play other instruments. You know, I can play a little bit of the guitar because guitar and piano, for some reason, like if you know the piano, I don't know what, what it is, um, I can play the viola and I can play a little bit of cello and the bass. And that's just because I was in orchestra. And so, there, yeah, I play a lot of different instruments. Yeah, guys. This is like such like, I'm laughing right now because that's such an Asian American experience. It's like we were all part of orchestra and we all had to play piano. Yeah. And we probably all had to take a dance class or something like that, right? Like, I had to take ballet. I sucked at it. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, ballet... Um, I did lyrical, modern, and also traditional Chinese dance, so I, I know a lot of traditional Chinese dance as well. There you go. What else is like super, did you have to take Kumon? Oh, no, because my dad taught me. So the reason I didn't do Kumon is because my father is a PhD and he has multiple, so he taught me everything at home. But I had to have Kumon-like sessions at home where like for like two, three hours every single night, it was in addition to homework, my dad would sit there and like teach from like his, you know, PhD books on math and science. It was yep. insane. I remember my mom being like, the math they're teaching you in America, like kids in first grade in Korea would be doing this. So I remember in first grade, I learned the entire multiplication table like orally. Did you have to do this where you have to go like, one times one is one, one times two is two. You have to learn the entire multiplication table. Two times twelve. Yeah, you have that. Yes, yes, yes. That multiplication table. And in fact, my sister, her, her like biggest memory is, you know, I was a good kid. I was that like Asian kid that you hate. You know, like I was the good little Asian girl that always did her work. Um, my sister, not the same. She was kind of like the rebel without a cause. And the one thing she remembers is my mom forcing her to learn the multiplication table when she was like all of four years old, and she. Refused to do it even at that age. She was a little rebel, and I was the one who went in there and sat her put you know I put her on my lap and I taught her the multiplication table. And she said that was her one like that's the memory she remembers from childhood. That's so adorable. Yeah, I just remember like when I didn't get like the math questions right, my mom would take a ruler and just be like, and I'd be like, <laughs> I think I had math phobia because of that. Like I just remember just it being brutal. And the thing is, is that like. 
all these experiences, I know it sounds like super like hardcore, but these are the sort of experiences that kind of shape the Asian, and this isn't just Asian Americans, right? It's just Asian people. This is just part of the Asian experience. And this is just part of the cultural thing that we go through. And so when we're introduced to Asian magic, it feels comfortable to us because it, it goes along with that same sort of, I almost want to say like a, this idea in Asian culture of like, it doesn't matter if you're naturally talented, it's actually about the work. Like, who gives a shit if you're like, yeah. you, if you have perfect pitch or whatever? No. Did you study for two hours? Did you practice piano for five hours? It's this idea that you have to constantly get good at it. And even if you're at 100%, not good enough. You can always do a little bit more. So there's this concept of, um, I almost want to say like, um, not even perfectionism, but an excellence that may seem abusive to Western people, but to Asian people, it's just normal. And Asian magic, I think, has a lot to do with that, right? It's about a long time of doing lots of things that seem really boring and just really just, you're just like, why? But it's like after like 10 years of doing it and doing it again and again and again, then you're like, oh. I think what's interesting is um, a lot, one of the views I see more prevalent in Western magical circles is things like, oh, I don't need to know astrology, or I can have very effective magic or spellcrafting without astrology, or, um, you know, I don't need to have a specific candle, or I don't, like, there's this idea of almost anything can replace almost anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's this, this very, like, a... Uh, like almost like a, a wild wild west approach to magic like where it's like anything like you know whatever i wish for it can happen as long as my intention is correct then you know my magic will work um eastern magic has a very very different mentality um i don't know that many taoist um ceremonial magicians who don't know astrology and don't incorporate numerology, don't incorporate different forms of pacing and ritual. So there's this idea that it all has to align, like every single bit and piece, like all everything has to fit together into this intricate recipe. And you can't do it without astrology. You can't do it without looking at feng shui. Like part of casting a circle is about looking at geomancy and feng shui. And so I think that's a very different approach. You know, when we talk about, when we joke about the tiger mom and sort of the Asian experience, I actually see that in occult circles as well. The occult approach is to sort of, you know, you have to know everything, you have to do everything all at once. Um, the Western approach to magic, I find, is more individualistic. I don't have to follow tradition. I don't have to, you know, just because the book says I have to use a red candle doesn't mean I have to use a red candle. I can use a blue. So I find it's very different and very interesting that they have such different, radically different approaches to how to spellcraft. Do you do mainly Eastern magic, or are there some Western magical traditions that you incorporate? So... I know I speak English, and I think in English, so all of my ritual magic is done in English, which is very interesting because it says a lot about my my root culture, right? So, for example, um, my husband's not the same thing. He's not a practitioner, but for example, when he's when he sleep talks, like when you know when he's dreaming and he, he talks out loud, he speaks Chinese, right? Or when you know numbers. When you're thinking about numbers, I think numbers in English, he thinks numbers in Chinese. And that's it. Numbers is where you can tell what your root culture is. So it's very interesting how Logos works like that. But yeah, so my root culture is obviously Western because I speak English in, in, in all things that I do that's spiritual. Um, or, or it's actually, no, that's not true because my mantra recitations are in Sanskrit. So 
I do Sanskrit and Pali, but basically it's English. Um, but the approach is very Eastern. It's very much based on my observations in Eastern occultism and also my research. Uh, I think it is affected by Western because in my interest in tarot, I did read a lot of Western occult texts. So I'm sure that there's an influence there that's more on a subconscious level. Even though I'm starting to get more and more into Eastern magical traditions, especially like Korean shamanism, um, I'm actually going to be interviewing this really cool chick. She's Korean American and she is a mudan or manshin. Manshin is the Korean word for shaman. Yeah, she's young too. So she was just initiated. And in Korean tradition, um, a shaman who's just initiated, that's like when she's in the highest demand. Like she's considered like really fresh. So for the first five years, that's like when she's like the super busiest in her career. So I'm gonna be talking to her soon. So I'm super excited about that. So I'm learning more about that, but it's like most of my magic is Western. Simply because like a lot of it is my Korean, it's okay, but it's not that great. And a lot of Korean esoteric texts and divination systems, they have Chinese characters. And I, I don't know anything about Chinese characters, so it's very difficult for me to do that. So I know I'm a little bit bummed out about that. So Benabel has written amazing books. I'll link those below. Her blog, uh, great. And she reviews uh, tarot decks, like very in-depth. And I think probably her site is one of the best known like tarot review sites. And of course she has a YouTube channel. She has uh, a bunch of things that you can download for free. And also things like courses, like very like practical courses. Like if you're trying to be a freelance uh, tarot reader, like how to deal with copyright, just courses like that. Just like very practical things that I think any sort of business person entrepreneur can also uh, benefit from. Cause you know, she is a lawyer for her day job. So she knows all this stuff, you know, girl knows her stuff. I was thinking back to Eastern versus Western magic. I actually don't think there's as big of a gap between the two. When you study Eastern occultism and Western occultism and even Latin American forms of magic, they all overlap. You know, so for like very simple things like how they work with the um, four directional corners, how they work with different geometric shapes, and the um, you know the metaphysical correspondence with shapes and how you use that in terms of creating space. Uh, the magic square, all of them use the same exact magic square, which is very interesting, and it goes back to mathematics as well, which actually a Chinese guy invented, by the way. So, like, I just don't, I don't see it so clear-cut as, oh, do you practice forms of Western magic or Eastern magic? I think at a certain point, the vocabulary is just very, very personal, and it's not about, you know I mean? It just becomes a very personal level of vocabulary that you're using in your craft, and the actual motion of the craft is universal. So um, at a certain level, I think no matter what background you come from, it's going to be recognizable, you know? So you can be an Eastern magical practitioner and watch Western ceremonial magic and totally understand what's going on and pick it up pretty quickly. And the same vice versa. If you're um, a Western occultist and you watch Eastern ceremonial magic, you're going to pick it up very, very quickly. So I do think there's a lot of crossover and it is very universal. I think magic is the one language that we all share in common. And unfortunately, only one particular type of individual that goes across all cultures can speak that language of magic. I remember like talking to some uh, a native Balinese person who said that maybe in the 1980s, the Balian who are sort of like the, the low magic, uh, the street magic people in Bali, 
um, not the high priests, but the ones who are doing like, especially uh, just like uh, practical magic, they were sent over to Africa by the Balinese government to learn African magical traditions. Yeah, they wanted to cross pollinate. So again, it's like completely different continents. And yet the Balinese, they understood like magic is constantly evolving, number one. And number two, that there was enough similarities between vastly different magical traditions, on the surface they seem vastly different, that a Balinese, a Balian, could go over to Africa and learn an ATR and come back with a deeper understanding of their own magic as well as taking Balinese magic and keeping it like dynamic and keeping it growing. So in a lot of ways, um, being able to integrate both Eastern and Western magic, it's very natural, right? It's just the next step. It's just the constant evolution of magic. Magic isn't just like what happened like a thousand years ago, guys. Like people who are just all about like, well, you know, like things that were done a thousand years ago, they can't change. It has to be this way forever and ever. I don't know what to tell you. Magic is constantly evolving. Yeah, for sure. And I also think one of the things I say about the second book, the Talisman book, is it, it may seem like it's about Eastern magic, but I think studying that book, no matter what your tradition is, will deepen your own tradition. Likewise, when I study other occult traditions, it deepens my own practice. And it's not that I begin culling or adopting or cherry picking from that tradition, but just learning it and seeing the commonality, it reinforces a lot of the things that I practice. And so I think it's always interesting to learn other traditions. And yeah, magic is constantly evolving. I think that's a very interesting political dynamic in magic as well. The people who are the conservatives who want to conserve and preserve a certain tradition or a certain type of magic, whereas people who are a little bit more progressive because you see that society changes. And magic is always a reflection of the people, the collective consciousness, and people are evolving. So I think my position politically and magically is going to be it does have to progress. A very good example is, for example, I Ching divination. So you know how we use yarrow stalks? You know, the traditional Chinese is to use yarrow stalks, and you have to go and pick the yarrow stalks and use it. And I find that in the West, people who are trying to do I Ching divination the traditional way are, like, upset with this idea that they have to use yarrow. But the reason yarrow was used is because yarrow was the weed that grew everywhere. You could go into the backyard and start picking yarrow. But in a lot of parts of the United States, that's not part of your geography. And so when I teach I Ching, I do believe in going out into nature and picking stalks to use as your divinatory tool. But if yarrow doesn't grow in your backyard, then you're not supposed to be using yarrow. You have to use what's around you. That's how you connect to nature, and that's how you connect the chi of the world around you to do the divination. So you have to go out into your natural environment where you live, your ecosystem, and find what the equivalent is to yarrow. If you take yarrow, it doesn't make sense because that's foreign to you. And so I, I do think magic does have to evolve. You have to like open your eyes and look at your own ecosystem and figure out how magic works in your ecosystem and not just you know blindly follow something that's in a grimoire from a different continent that was written 5,000 years ago. Yeah, this concept of uh, the syncretic nature of a lot of religions that survive today. You know, the reason why Catholicism is still huge in South America is that the church was able to say, okay, you've got your indigenous practices, we're going to put that, we're going to overlay that with Catholicism. So you're still Catholic, but you get to take Catholic ideas and like take it like 2.0, you know, you get to evolve it a little bit to match the landscape and the time that Catholicism came over to, to South America. And that's also one of the reasons why 
Catholicism was huge in Korea versus in Japan. I don't know if you've read the Wikipedia article about this, about why Catholicism like spread like wildfire in Korea. But basically it was that Korean aristocrats, they went to China where the missionaries already were. They learned Catholicism from the missionaries. Then they went back to Korea and they taught as, you know, aristocrats, as like leaders of their communities, they taught Catholicism to the average person in Korea. So it wasn't white missionaries coming in and being like, our way. We don't understand Korea, but, you know, we can barely speak the language, whatever, but we're going to teach you about this and you got to accept our God. It was actual Koreans, leaders, coming back to Korea and teaching Catholicism in a way that made sense to Koreans. So that's the reason why so many people today in Korea who are Christians, they still do Confucian ancestral rites, even though the Vatican would be like, what? You know? They're still doing it because they're mixing it together. It's flavored and evolving to match Korea at that time and to match Korean temperaments and Korean history and Korean culture. That's the reason why it took off so well versus in Japan, the missionaries came in and they tried to just like overtake everything Japanese. You know, it was just their way and the Japanese were like not having it. So it's like, is your magic going to be like that? Is it going to be like those Portuguese, you know, like missionaries that came in and were just like, we're just going to like make Japan like into Portuguese Catholics? Or are you going to be more like the Catholic um, Yangban, the aristocrats of Korea who came in and decided we're going to mix Confucianism and Catholicism? Like you get to choose what sort of magic you're going to do. And it sounds like the sort of magic you do, the magic that I do, is a little bit more like, Let's mix it if it makes sense to mix it. And I think for us specifically, it, it almost has to be mixed because it does have to be a reflection of your identity and your experiences. We do kind of have one foot in the Asian community and one foot in the American You know, we are sort of walking two worlds. And so as an Asian American, I think it's almost necessary to walk two worlds in magic as well because that's how your magic is going to be the most powerful. This reminds me so much of what a lot of African-American writers have been talking about. Like when you were mentioning how when you first started off, like with your tarot book, how you wanted to just focus on tarot and have it less about, you know, your, your race. But it was, it was totally unavoidable, right, that your race would get into it. And that's, I think, what um, Langston Hughes talked about. You know, he said that it's impossible to be just a writer. Like there was somebody who wrote to him and said, I don't want to be known as a black writer, I just want to be a writer. And Langston Hughes said, sorry, can't be done. You will always, always have to be a black writer. It's just part of what it means to be a minority um, and to be out in the public eye. Being the minority, it informs your writing, it informs everything, how the public sees you, and it also informs what you do. Like there's no way it can't, and therefore, trying to just be that writer, it's impossible, in America at least, to just be like the writer. You're going to be the person of color who's also a writer. And also of um, Webb Du Bois talking about, you know, the veil, the, the sort of like the code switching that we have to do as people of color, as, as Asian people. Um, and it's not just the fact that we're people of color, but we're straddling incredibly different, I mean, East and West, like very different cultures being able to straddle those, being bilingual, bicultural, by all the, you know, hyphenated everything. What does that mean? And, you know, trying to find our space in it. And, you know, just the fact that I know you now and you know me, it's sort of like, yes, you know, another person who's like Asian occultist, Asian American occultist. 
It's like a really good feeling. No matter what you do, you really can't escape that ethnic identity. And I also think it's funny that um, because we straddle these two worlds, um, the the this the conflicts that we see that other people don't talk about is within the Asian American community. We police each other to see how well we can. Do you know what I mean? Like we all police each other. It's really bad. It's horrible. But we do police each other in terms of are you American enough or are you are you embarrassing the community? Right? Like we really, it's a horrifying thing, but we do it to ourselves. Oh, you mean the entire like? Oh my God, he or she is such a fob. I don't think like white people will understand yeah. what that means, but I mean Eddie Eddie Wang, he has a show like Fresh Off the Boat, and it's a pejorative that Asian people yeah. put on other Asian people if they're too Asian, you know. But they're living in the West, we call them fobs. This <laughs> is really bad. Oh my God, no! Like uh, I think what's so interesting is that they're Asian Americans are some of the least like at least ostensibly the least magical people that I know because they're too busy like going to school, going to grad school, getting their law degree, their CPA thing, you know what I mean? Like everybody in my family, they're like lawyers. So I totally get like your lifestyle and stuff. And yet we come from such a rich tradition, you know, of being super magical. And yet everything about this life, uh, this immigrant life has been about focusing on the mundane and focusing on even our Christianity or our spirituality is like super mundane, right? It seems less about the actual religion and more about the the, the social aspect of it all. Yeah, but you know, I think it's, it's weird. If you look for it, you can see it. So like, I know you're into glamour magic. When I first learned about the 12-step Korean skincare, you know, the Korean 12-step, doesn't, okay, if you know, if you really listen, if you, if you understand the system, it's so magical. It's like a form of ritual. Like it's all about like like the alchemy of like the ingredients that go into all of the steps and how each of the steps alchemizes with each other. And then even like when you look at um, Asian beauty, there's always this concept of it having to be holistic. That oh, it's about like what you eat, and um, it's also how you can't you know don't get mad, don't get angry, don't be too fired up because of like you know. But, but I mean, it sounds stupid, but you know, I mean? like it's almost a form of magic in in a weird kind of way. Like oh, you know, you have to be peaceful, and that's how you won't get so many wrinkles, you know. Or like they even do like the face like guasa, like the, the massages and everything. Yep. I don't know. I think there's a magical philosophy behind the system, you know, that, that I think we don't necessarily identify outwardly as a form of magic or ritual magic or occultism, but it very much, I think, informs our everyday life. That is an excellent point. There's so many things that Asian people do that may seem like extra to Westerners, like, oh, Asian people, it's like, you know, this idea of like, they get obsessed with something, then they're like, 100% all into something, whether it's like K-pop, skincare, and I guess to a Westerner looking in, it looks very superficial, right? It seems like just like a consumerist, superficial, um, image-obsessed culture, and yet, like what you said, like the thoughts behind it, like you don't see like the levels, the discipline, the rituals that go into learning everything you can about your favorite BTS member, doing the 12 steps of the Korean beauty thing and the massages and stuff. Just all of it, like so much of what we do, like in our culture is so ritualized and therefore inherently magical. And the Western idea of thinking of it is that it's too much. 
is it? Or is it just that we're just doing magic and it just seems like a lot, but yet, what can I say? Asian culture is dominating the world right now. The Asian economy is dominating the world right now. Something's going right. Even like our holidays. So for example, I know in the Chinese culture during holidays, you know, there's certain how to eat certain foods and the foods have to be prepared a certain way. Um, and that's kind of, there's a magical philosophy behind that as well, where there's a, there's a sympathetic magic going on where this symbolizes this. Ergo, if you eat this, you will have this type of, you know, fortune or prosperity in your next year. So it's very interesting that, you know what I'm saying, that very um, core concept of sympathetic magic is even in what you have to eat during certain holidays. And so I don't think Asians are divorced. Modern Asians are, are divorced from magic. I think we just don't call it magic because it's so deeply embedded in our way of thinking that it just seems like everyday mundane. It doesn't seem like magic. So true, you know, and also that genre of um, literature, what is it called? Magical realism? It's it's what they slap on to, you know, people of color who write um, things that are, you know, realistic but have that sort of like that magical sort of uh, superstitiousness that people of color who are writing yes. are given. But anyways, um, and yet it's not us trying to be like super magical. We're just writing about things, our life experience, the way that we see it, which may seem magical. Like, to, like, in a way, like, it's almost like, whoa, next level to Westerners. But, you know, um, the way that Amy Tan, you know, I'm thinking of, of Asian writers, Amy Tan, she writes about the Chinese experience, the Chinese-American experience, and I don't know, it just seems like very natural that somebody from that culture would experience life that way. She's not trying to be extra, that's just the way it is. So... Yeah, yes. you're right. Like maybe just everything that we do just every day is magical and we didn't even know it because it was just taken for granted that everything we did was magical. And in that sense, maybe Asian Americans, it's just one more step, you know, like one more step and then it's like full blown like sorcery. But we're already there. Like we've already done the foundations. All the years of Kumon and piano practice and violin practice has taught us like how to be disciplined and how to do ritual. So we're we're already there. If you look at <laughs> if you look at every single um, marginalized community, people of color, like every single um, community of color that sort of has experienced some form of colonialism or imperialism, um, if you if you really study it, it's a form of um, Western ideology suppressing the native magic. It's very, very interesting. Look like Haitian, um, Haitian history, uh, you look at Chinese history, it's always about some form of Western ideology coming in to suppress the folk magic of the imperialized community. So there's something interesting that's there where I feel like, you know, the oppressor is subconsciously afraid of the power and the magic of the oppressed. And so when the oppressed is able to sort of come together and, and summon up that native magic again, which begins with ancestor worship, because ancestors are what's connected to the, you know, the part of you that was not, that was never imperialized. And so it is very important to connect to the part of your legacy that has never experienced imperialism, bring that to the modern era, summoning up in you and overtake the forms of marginalization and disenfranchisement that we experience today. So I think if you were looking at POCs, the most important thing to do to overtake that imperialist or post-colonial, um, post-colonial 
nice thought is to summon up old magic. I'm so in agreement with you. Like ancestor veneration and also like local spirits, like local land spirits, those allies that anybody can access, anybody can access, whether you live in like an apartment in New York City or you live in like the rice fields of like Bali, you know, like land spirits and your ancestors, you can access them and they're powerful allies and they, they've changed my life. And it sounds like, you know, like it's also a part of your life as well and powerful forces in your life. So take it from two Asian chicks. <laughs> oh, that's, that was in 101. It's, um, you know, living in harmony with the land around you also implies living in harmony with the spirits around you. There you go, guys. You don't have to necessarily go straight to some crazy grimoire like your first year as a magician. You can go to, you know, your grandfather who passed away when you were two years old and the land spirits that were there before the bodega, like, was built in your neighborhood in the corner. So magic can be as simple as that and yet as powerful as that. And I think those, that those two practices, just doing those without doing anything else can create incredible change and incredible movement in somebody's life. I absolutely agree. So when did you say that your tarot, the next one is gonna come out, the next, uh, the next round, the second round? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still working on it. So um, we're looking at probably April is when delivery, like what, if you're looking at, if you're asking when you're going to hold the deck in your hands, probably April. So sometime next year, early on, I'll announce pre-orders, but right now I don't have any plans because I try to compartmentalize. Um, I don't want to think about that until I figure out the, the substantive, like right now it's about the magic. It's about like focusing on the content, the symbolism. So I'm really not thinking about pre-orders and I'll think about that when I get there. So I really have no information. I really don't. I'm still focused on the, um, the, the sigil crafting. Oh, it's, I can't, we've been talking for a long time. The time just flew by. I know, right? I know. And I feel like we can just like keep on rambling for hours and hours and hours. So I'm just gonna be like, okay, Benabelle needs to go to sleep. She needs to replenish herself. So I'm gonna bid you good night, Benabelle. It was so good talking to you. Yes. This should not be the last. Anytime you want to reach out, please. I will. I will. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan signing off. <laughs>